Welcome to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free, powered by the Century Foundation. I'm Rebecca Vallis, and I'm a former legal aid lawyer turned policy advocate who works with public policy and law, as well as organizing, coalition building, and narrative as tools for building a more just society. One premised on collective consciousness of our common humanity and the inherent dignity and rights that come with being human. And every week, I talk with visionary leaders working to reinvigorate our shared imagination and disrupt the off-kilter imbalance of power in the U.S. to build a society where everyone can thrive and experience the shared abundance we all deserve. And as we continue Off-Kilter's series of conversations with leaders across the economic justice movement, digging into why, in the famous words of Audre Lorde, self-care is political warfare and the role radical self-care plays in their own lives to sustain them in this work, I had a ton of fun sitting down with our next guest in this series, who is a dear friend and colleague and one of the most innovative and fearlessly creative advocates I know. As I've come to learn over the years, a key pillar of radical self-care when it comes to doing social justice work, and really, honestly, life in general, is, to paraphrase jazz legend Thelonious Monk, finding the technique that's relevant for you. As the story goes, Monk, as a brilliant if unconventional musician, was told early on he didn't have the right technique, or even any technique, when it came to playing piano, because he played differently from his contemporaries and went his own way to create his own unique sound. The thing is, as Robin D.G. Kelly argues in a definitive biography on the jazz legend, which you can find out more about in show notes for folks inspired to go down that rabbit hole, it's not that Monk lacked technique. He studied classical piano for years. It's that instead of replicating how he was taught to play, Monk pioneered his own technique, the one that was relevant for him. So bringing us back to radical self-care, the metaphor I'm drawing up here is probably self-evident. And there are few leaders in the economic justice movement who epitomize this kind of be your eccentric self without apology genius to the extent that our next guest, Alex Lawson, does. As you'll hear, Alex wears a lot of hats, including serving as executive director of an organization called Social Security Works, which has for years been at the forefront of the movement to expand Social Security. He's also one of the co-owners of We Act Radio, one of the anchor stations that broadcasts this very show over the airwaves. And those are just two examples. There are more. We had a far-ranging conversation about what it means to find the technique that's relevant for you in the context of social justice work and how this shows up in the context of radical self-care. Let's take a listen. Alex Lawson, thank you for taking the time to come back on the show. And I have to say, as much fun as I have getting to work with you in a variety of different ways, it's been a long time since we had you on the podcast. It has been. It's been too long. So thank you for inviting me back on. Well, it's my total pleasure, and I always love being in conversation with you, whether it is for a podcast or whether it's just uh, shooting the, the the stuff, we will say, so that Troy doesn't have to start bleeping things out in the first few minutes. But um, before we get into this conversation, um, I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about how you come to social justice work. Um, you are far from a conventional or a one-dimensional policy advocate, and that's a big part of why I thought you were perfect to have this conversation with. But um, share a little bit of your origin story. Who is Alex Lawson? How do you come to this work? It's definitely a radioactive spider. Um, no. Uh, so 
I don't know. I've uh, interrogated this a lot. Um, and I think the only question I have for like where it comes from, uh, I don't know. Uh, obviously, my, my family um, believing in me and giving me so much support is a key part of it. Uh, but mo- both my parents, my, my mother is uh, extremely right wing. She's Brazilian and grew up under the dictatorship and thought that was just great. Um, so like a Bolsonaro type, um, very smart, uh, also, you know, right-wing Republican, my father's conservative. He's not a Republican because he can't stand how stupid the parties got, but, um, it was not, you know, like directly from my parents, uh, but obviously has everything to do with my parents too. So I go to therapy to try to interrogate that as well. We can get to the next part because I'm pretty certain after, right? Like things are a little bit formed. I have a deep moral um, conviction that comes from I was raised Catholic uh, and I enjoyed a lot of parts of the church and I abhorred other parts of it. Um, So basically the progressive help poor people parts, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And then the, you know, the... um, the retrograde um, uh, stuff that basically has you believe that like Jesus came down and said, hate gays and, you know, peace, I'm out. I was like, that's just stupid. So I was in a place where I had a, a deep commitment, but I also was struggling with what it meant because I hated the institution um, as well and the contradictions in it. But I did find a vein that I, I mined um, very deeply which was um, liberation theology. Liberation theology's tenant of a preferential option of a poor and faith through acts today to materially benefit um, people's condition of living now uh, in terms of helping to find them find a spiritual perfection as well. Um, That really spoke to me and the sacrifice and martyrdom of standing up to these fascists um because in the history of liberation theology these are the the nuns and the the priest uh saint oscar romero uh who were assassinated by the right-wing um fascists in south america and um so that was where i sort of had a lot of my identity but i was really still trying to figure out like okay well how do i do that uh after college I was reading this uh, National Geographic article about uh, migrant sugar cane workers and the horrendous conditions that they were kept in, um, in which was basically like slavery uh, in Florida. And in looking into it, uh, I found, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I want to, I want to like figure out how to, how to help in that area. And at the time I still had these very, um, grandiloquent is that the word valis uh but whatever i was like i was in the like we got to save the world that's where i thought um we were but i I was young and um i hadn't done that much but i do like my uh my thought at the time looking back but looking around i was like okay i'm gonna find something that like helps people closest to the people that i was reading about and i found a a clinic in chicago called heartland health outreach uh, and they uh, served very, very um, 
poor populations, active drug users, active mental health issues, um, homeless, and then had worked with this other um, place, the, the Kovlar Center, which worked with like victims of state-sponsored torture and um, and trafficked individuals and gave, and the, the clinic gave healthcare, right? So it was like a healthcare provider for these populations. And in my brain, I was like, that's a perfect fit um, because the mantra of a preferential option for the poor and liberation theology and then um, heal the sick, care for the downtrodden, um, feed the hungry being the, the sort of um, guiding principles. So then I went down and, and started uh, working in a clinic. And I don't know, Valis, if you want to redirect from there, but I can tell you that that's where I learned, like, that's where the real world crashed into um, my belief system. And it wasn't as simple as like, oh, I realized that things are really hard. Um, but I did realize that too. Yeah, no, and, and that's like, I really appreciate your, just the, the way you're telling that story, but also the evolution of you as a human with evolving awareness over time and through experience of how you fit into and are connected to the mission that you had some semblance of wanting to be connected to, but but needed to sort of find that that real, way, that real world um, foot in the door. I feel like that's a lot of the conversations I have with folks um, who are, you know, students and are, are looking to break into this work. And, and um, it, I feel like that's, it's a, it's a great place to start you sharing that level of detail. I really appreciate. So I am going to take us now into present day. You, I mentioned you are far from a conventional or one-dimensional policy advocate, and it's not to say that there's anything wrong with being conventional or one-dimensional as a policy advocate. You just happen to be the opposite of that. You wear a ton of hats. Some of them are public policy related and, and advocacy related. Some of them are media related. You you also um, have started a lot of different things. You've been something of an entrepreneur throughout your career. So to, to properly lay the foundation for this conversation before we get into the radical self-care components of it, um, I, I want to ask you to just talk a little bit about each of the hats that you wear right now for folks who might not be familiar with your work or for maybe folks who might be familiar with one piece of your work, but who aren't aware that you wear all these different hats. It's a lot of hats, Valis. Um, I'm going to have to, uh, you'll, you'll have to uh, let me know if I'm missing something. But the main thing is that it all does circle around one goal uh, encompassed in social security works where i'm the executive director uh and at social security works you know policy wise we fight to protect and expand social security medicare medicaid and to lower prescription drug prices but i think more important is uh philosophically uh our mission is a continuation of of francis perkins and setting up the uh the the new deal and all of the new what that encompassed including social security but it was much broader uh and it was acknowledged at the time like when fdr signed the social security act into law he said let this law be a cornerstone that we continue building on so at francis perkins and the new dealers were building uh and everyone knew it at the time it wasn't one you know discrete program that had uh you know uh that started and stopped in a certain place. It was an ever expanding system of economic security for everyone in this country. And it knowingly did not accomplish that in one. Um, it, it was not sufficient to provide economic security for everyone. And it certainly did not 
provide for everyone. Um, but over time, people who were excluded in the beginning were added, things were added to it. So uh, disability was added to it. Uh, the benefits were increased. And basically, each generation uh, has done its part to build upon this system. And you get to the 80s when things, I'll keep using the word retrograde because I enjoy it, um, hit a retrograde motion uh, and start going the other way with Reagan and Thatcher and neoliberalism and the idea that um, the ridiculous idea that government um, can't do things on its own and only private uh, industry can, which is so far from the truth. Uh, but we, we don't have to uh, go go after that too much. But the reason that things in this world are sort of, there's so many hats, Rebecca, is I wanted to lay out that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to foster, create, advocate um, an ever-expanding system of economic security. And what that means is, you know, we're fighting to raise the minimum wage because you can't have security with low wages. So we're taking on, you know, all the corporations there. We're fighting to uh, cancel all student debt because you can't have economic security if uh, you're saddled with uh, outrageous debt to, to get an education. Uh, so, you know, we're taking on Wall Street and big money there. Um, you can't have economic security without uh, guaranteed health care. If you can go bankrupt because you got sick or hurt, then there's no economic security. So we need guaranteed health care for every single person in this country. So you know, we're taking on big pharma, big hospital, big insurance. Uh, and pretty quickly, it's it's pretty clear that the work that I want to do um, is in direct opposition to most of the most powerful uh, industries who have a, you know, a real good track record of defeating, co-opting, destroying their opposition. Uh, and the way they do that is is manifold so it, you know they they have to do everything they have lots of money so they hire lots of different people to do it we uh have to sort of be able to match them in places so you're never going to get for example the whole truth about why the republicans want to cut social security so badly uh on the corporate media because the corporate media are the same people who want to cut social security so badly it is the billionaire class you're not going to get good information about um, why uh, drug prices are so high and how hard we're getting ripped off when every single ad in the corporate media is a pharmaceutical ad, right? The corporate media is the pharmaceutical industry. So the being able to tell our own stories was something that came up really early on um, in my uh, analysis or diagnosis of what needed to exist for me to be able to uh, accomplish the mission of social security works. That's why I started We Act Radio, which is um, a radio and television production company uh, on, uh, in, on the banks of the Anacostia on the radical side of Martin Luther King Avenue in Southeast Washington, DC. Uh, and, you know, where we know each other through the show from. And I think everything makes sense when you remember what Social Security Works is trying to do uh, and that our opponents will oppose and try to co-opt us from every single angle. Uh, and so all the things that all the hats that I wear um, are are things so that I can keep 
pushing that advocacy mission. I love how you all, we wove that all together, right? Because it's, it's easy to be like, oh my God, this is a bunch of different hats. Here's a dude who is running an organization that has to do with social security and has that in its name, but also who owns a radio station. And I feel like sometimes when I'm trying to explain you to someone else, not that I could ever uh, try to explain you adequately because you're a complex human being. But anytime I'm trying to like, you know, explain who you are and how you're connected to something that we might be working on together, I feel like I often get the reaction like, wait, 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 he runs an organization and he has a radio and a TV operation, right? And you just, you summed that up beautifully, right? It's not, they're not separate missions. It's actually multiple modalities through which you express and, and organize other people and resources in service of that, that, um, that shared goal. Um, and someday you and I will get matching tattoos that say hazards and vicissitudes, but we can talk about that another time. So, um, so this is a great segue then into where I wanted to go with this conversation and a big part of why I wanted to have you on the air instead of just being one of the people who is the reason that this podcast exists because of your, your We Act Radio uh, um, role. Um, and so as we are having a series of conversations with leaders across the economic justice space to talk about what, what is radical self-care, how does it show up in people's lives, and there's a lot of different perspectives on this, and we're defining that very broadly as folks have heard in our, our first two episodes of this season, um, I, I, I feel like a, this might be a surprising next episode or a surprising next spin on this radical self-care conversation to some people. But as I've come to learn over the years, um, after a long stretch of my own life where I felt immense pressure to hide really huge parts of myself, to fit in, to be like everyone else, um, I've come to learn that part of radical self-care is actually being your whole self and bringing your whole self into the work. And this is a big part of why I wanted to talk with you for this particular season, because honestly, Alex, there are few people in this work and, and whom I've gotten to work with in this work who epitomize this to the extent that you do. And I mean that as the highest compliment I could possibly offer. So I, I'm going to turn it to you and ask, how does this land with you in the context of a conversation about radical self-care, the notion of being your whole self in the work. And, and I also just want to note that phrase, being your whole self, right, is it, it's, it gets used at this point in at a level where it's actually become almost a cliche. We probably have a little bit of definitional work to do around it, but um, where does that take you? Um, and, and how does that show up for you in, in how you show up in the work? Well, that's a good one, isn't it? Um, so I think there's a lot to this. And I, I want to start with one acknowledgement, which is that, um, I mean, I have a lot of privilege or whatever it is. I also uh, had to get, you know, I had to get into the grind as well. Um, and so it is true that, um, you know, it, at, at points you do have to fit into some system if you're trying to um, change it. I'm just thinking when I was, you know, younger, just stepping from working in outreach HIV clinics over into politics, um, you know, I, uh, I actually, you know, where I learned some of this is uh, I'm sort of a like jeans and a, and a ironic t-shirt wearing guy with tattoos. Um, but I would organize in church basements uh, on HIV policy in the District of Columbia, and I, I wouldn't dress up. And afterwards, and I'm going into Anacostia, and I'm I'm uh, organizing, and we did some really great work. It's actually where I met my business partner, Kamon Freeman, who I then start go on to start We Act Radio with. 
but this really wonderful woman, um, like a, a, an older woman who goes to church a lot, she just pulled me aside and she said, you know, you might not know it, but um, you're really insulting everyone when you show up here in a t-shirt and jeans. We dress up to go to church. So it's not to do with you. It's to do with respect of where you're going. Uh, and so I was like, okay, yep, makes perfect sense to me. And so from that point on, I put on a suit when I go uh, and organize in church basements. And um, so I want to be clear that that's not what you're talking about. You do have to, um, in 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 this work, you have to meet people where they are. I've used like 17 cliches already, but cultural competency includes that kind of respect. Um, now to sort of get to your question, I do think at this point in my career where I am the executive director, I do own We Act Radio, um, I tend to not care <laughs> too much about uh, what people think uh, about you know me. And so I don't try to tell a story of me that's different than who I am. Um, also, I'm just like, first of all, it's exhausting to try to like keep things straight. If you're trying to do that, it's it's very uh, if your identity as shown to the world is really different than who you are, um, there is a psychic tax that you're paying all the time um, and it will uh, burn you out because you're, you're having to do actual work uh, in your brain above and beyond just doing the work that's in front of you all the time. Uh, and also a lot of the conforming sort of things um, are actually ways of people, money controlling people. Uh, so, you know, like uh, funders and uh, major donors and stuff. Like I feel like a big problem in left organizing is that everything is done um, sort of searching after money for major donors and foundations. And, you know, we love each and every one of them that gives us money. Um, this isn't about them. This is about everyone who doesn't give us money. I'm just kidding. It's about all of them. Um, the, uh, the, but that is why I started a, a consulting company that just donates all of our money over to social security work. So I didn't, note it before, but there's We Act Radio, there's Social Security Works, there's Strategy and Hustle. Uh, and Strategy and Hustle is a business that we run, a super successful business, if I do pat myself on the bat, on the back. Um, but that's to replace major donors and um, make me not have to ask foundations for money. So I think that might have all been a preamble, Vallis, to say it's not easy to do um, like to just show up uh, always as your authentic self because a lot of the stuff that you have to do that's difficult is actually based on the systems that we're trying to um, dismantle and replace. So I I would just urge people not to get frustrated, uh, you know, off the bat. Like it is hard. It's it's really really hard to work in um, for justice, especially because. There's a whole world. The majority of the of the the systems, they don't care at all about justice, and so people can um, can succeed very quickly uh, by doing the exact wrong thing. So 
that tension that it is uh it's a slow a slower uh grind uh and is, is very real so now what do i get to do to to uh show up as myself um i do try to make it pretty clear who who i am really early so people um you know aren't shocked uh later and i think you tell me valis but may, mainly it's like being really honest about what i am trying to do and how i'm trying to do it and not wasting too too much time on um sort of like i don't know the niceties. I don't really know how to explain it more than um, saying it. It's actually really hard. So I don't think you're going to be able to to give everyone a roadmap of how to get there in like a sh in short order. I mean, you know how hard it is because you went through it all. It's a very um, big process. It is. And I want to dig into it and make it a little bit more real. So I'm going to pull on a few of those threads and I appreciate on so many levels, the nuance you brought into that response, but also just like not hiding that this is hard, right? None, none of these conversations that we're having in this season, I, I think are any, nobody's coming in being like, this was super easy for me. <laughs> this came on day one, right? Like this is stuff that that people spend entire lifetimes trying to to master. So I appreciate you situating um, this conversation in in that understanding. Um, so I you I love that I love that um, you told the story about the the not having a suit on in the church basement, right? Because part of where I was also going to take this is that the um, the kind of the notion of the serious black suit that like all of them look the same, that is, um, it, there's a reality to it. And I was going to bring that up, but I was also going to bring it up because there's also a, there's sort of a metaphorical element to the suit, um, the very serious black suit being kind of representative of a, a larger cultural um, uh, expectation that I, I want to dig into a little bit with you as well as we pull on some of these threads. So um, I'm going to hark back to that that serious okay. black suit um, with appreciation for you telling the story you told that it's not to say that we never wear suits, right? Or that it's never appropriate. And, and um, cultural competency is is absolutely the thing to be centering and being aware of as we think about, you know, not not just um, how we speak and um, uh, but but also how we how we show up and what that looks like um, in in various spaces. But setting coming back to the serious black suit. There is a lot of pressure, um, especially in D.C., inside the Beltway, but I think this is true in a lot of different professional spaces and especially ones where people are engaged in, say, policy work or law work or law reform work. Ton of pressure um, that that is often tangible um, to wear the black suit, the serious black suit, almost like it's armor, right? To show that one fits in, um, and and that's where I'm bringing it in as sort of having a metaphorical element as well, because it isn't just about the clothes. There's a cultural element that it represents, and I want to say I remember the first time that you and I met, um, and how just it like totally, totally, completely different you were. Alex, from anyone I had yet met in D.C. This is before I lived in D.C. I was still a legal aid lawyer, but I was coming to D.C. all the time on the train from Philly um, because uh, Social Security disability benefits were on the chopping block. And I was one of the folks who was kind of organizing advocates to try to prevent that from happening. And the good guys won, the bad guys lost, but that's for another conversation. Um, and I remembered meeting you 
in um, some, some kind, I think we were actually at a Hill meeting together before we even got to know each other in the radio context. And you were, you were just like this dude who was confidently his own unique archetype. I can't think of any other way to put that. Um, And you you just radiated this, like, I don't care about trying to be like all the serious black suit wearers, even though everybody else in the meeting had on a black suit and was, you know, doing the, like, we're all, we're all hoping we're, we're fitting in thing. And, and, and it, it was, it was notable enough to me that um, I actually remember that moment to this day, even though you and I have become friends and spent a lot of time together since that. Um, And so I bring that story up um, in in uh, as we sort of want to dig into this because it's not just about the clothes. You started to get into this, but um, the the like knowing who you are and being comfortable showing up as who you are without having what people think about you being the first thing you think about in workspaces was what was so clear to me even before I knew you on a personal level. And, you know, part of, as I'm saying this, part of what comes through is, is the famous um, uh, inscription above the Oracle at, at, at Delphi, right? Know thyself, right? It, it, it feels like sort of the first step to this. And so I'm curious if you feel like there's a story you can tell, or maybe it, maybe it's a progression over time, or maybe it's, it's other anecdotes that you want to bring in of like, how did you find yourself and how did you come to know who you are um, in contrast to um, the conditioning and the here's all the things you need to be to fit in in this work world did that come easily did that did that was that just how you were born and showed up in this life I'm curious if you have more you can share for folks who might be you know wanting to hear this and say how do I how do I learn from this guy who is so comfortable being who he is um, yes at this point in your career, which you've already disclosed, comes with a, a certain significant level of privilege, given that you're already at the executive director level. Yeah, I love this conversation. It's um, it's um, way harder than uh, you know policy ones, but I think because uh, I I do spend as a middle aged professional, uh, I do spend a lot of time examining um, my life. I also got my undergraduate degree in philosophy, so I do believe in the uh, the benefits of the examined life. Um, and I think that what I opened the the show with is actually relevant to this question. Um, and you know, we all, no, not everyone, uh, but I at least shy away from uh, grandiloquent descriptions of myself. I believe, but I will just trying to be honest about like why, um, I. I had, you know, in that first meeting, because I think I could have been in the suit and you probably would have still had the same thing, because I think the big thing is that I am really clear why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, And it was based on that moral or ethical, um, but the understanding that I am driven by a personal belief in a purpose, uh, in the preferential option for the poor. And I have through a lot of work, you know, come to understand that much more deeply. Um, but I've never lost sight. Um, so like I worked in outreach HIV clinics and I learned to hate pharma with all of uh, my being as uh, clients would die and uh, other clients would be harmed because of these policies. Uh, and I learned what policy <clears throat> was and that the pharmaceutical corporations had just corrupted all of the process. So I was like, I'm going to go to DC and learn this stuff um, and change it. 
so when I came to get my master's in DC, I, I was clear why I was getting my master's. Um, what was the driving force there? And I will say it was fun because I learned a lot. I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. And obviously I didn't. Um, I learned a lot along the way. Um, and I, I got my master's at GW in policy. And um, I, though, even though like you, you learn things and you, you uh, react to new information and new inputs, um, I never did lose the why. Um, and that kept me always safe from uh, sort of, I think, something that you're getting at that is really real, which is like uh, like people who are, uh, let's just make it caricature-like, but like they're supposedly uh, doing the, you know, they're doing work uh, in service of justice, but they're terrible people, right? And you sort of wonder, you're like, what, how did that happen? Like, why wouldn't you just, like go work in on like with the extractive industries or the NRA, like, why would you? Um, and I think part of that is that it's easy to forget the why it's easy to forget the why and, and actually focus just on like the myriad of inputs that we get that tell us how we're doing, like, um, like a real life video game score, right? Like our, um, salary, our title, our standing with people who we believe uh, are important, um, and whatever system we're in is telling us like, oh, these are the important people. So, you know, that's generally not coming from us. It's coming from outside, these outside um, indicators. And I do think part of my armor has always been... Um, I'm going to I'm going to probably end with something that you won't like very much, uh, Vallis, but we'll see um, the that I know why I, I've come here. And unfortunately, or whatever, I, it doesn't bother me. I will say a lot of it is uh, how much I hate pharma, how much I absolutely hate um, private equity and Wall Street that are willing to kill, harm, uh, just lie, deceive, steal, they'll do anything, uh, and especially to the most vulnerable of uh, people in order to make money. I literally hate that. Uh, and that hate is very clarifying. So uh, it is a uh, something that I can use as a as a compass type thing, you can always take the other side of hate, um, and, and say, um, you know, that's, that's your, your uh, compass north, if you uh, think that that's a more healthy way of, of approaching things. And I don't know, who am I to say one way is better or the other? I will say that the way I look at it by having these defined things that I think are wrong um, is that it never then confuses me who's doing what, right? Like if you're working and it's benefiting uh, big insurance, big hospital, um, big pharma, I don't say like the workers, right? The workers don't uh, aren't, aren't um, who I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the C-suite or the lobbyists in this town or the policy pay pay people, the paid liars um, who are doing the work uh, of these extractive industries, but not just oil and gas, but also them. But extractive is the, they're, they're looking at trying to extract value from people's lives. And what that means is taking advantage of people, like uh, sucking capital out of them 
uh, holding their lives and their health and the health of their families hostage for for money. Um, and I don't know. I think because I've I have a, a vision and um, I know what what I'm here for, and it's actually coming from you know what I set out to do. I think that is is part of how I've um, been able to, I think, do a pretty good job of um, maintaining my uh, my focus and authentic focus uh, on really pragmatic solidarity, which is where I'm always trying to fit. Um, pragmatic solidarity is sort of my, uh, in reading uh, Dr. Paul, Paul Farmer, late Dr. Paul Farmer as well, uh, that's sort of the, the distillation of the preferential option for the poor and liberation theology. Uh, it, it, it can guide, it guides me. So I'll just personalize it and say that, that, that is, um, so I don't know. I don't know where you want to take that. If you want to focus on, you're saying hate is important, or if you want to focus on uh, pragmatic solidarity or, or uh, where you want to go with that. No, I love that answer. And I, I love where you started to take it because as I was the, the, the sort of starting with intention, right. As opposed to starting with a job description, because I have to say um, that was when I was thinking about how we could potentially um, frame up this conversation and what were some of the things that I, I, I look at you and I see you as a model of for um, the, the broader progressive community, the broader, the broader um, social justice space. Um, as we, as we have a series of conversations about radical self-care and what does it include? One of the things that I actually wrote down was um, start with intention, not a job description. Um, and and I feel like you just you took us there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go there just a little bit more as well. Um, one of my favorite things to do, we were talking about this a little bit before we started rolling, is to talk to up-and-coming advocates who are looking to find their place in this work. Um, it, it, what, it's honestly one of my greatest honors in this work is to have kind of what sometimes get called um, informational interviews with folks who just want to talk and say like, hey, I'm studying this. Like, how do I how do I get to, to X point and, and do this work? Um, and a, a common theme in those conversations um, is that folks are generally generally looking at a whole set of job descriptions and trying to say like, you know, which of these might be a good fit for me. Um, and I always try to zoom out in those conversations and say, okay, we could look at a whole bunch of job descriptions and we could see pros and cons for all of them and, and talk about trade-offs and which ones are, you know, a six or a seven or an eight in terms of fit for what you're looking to do and what your goals are. But where I always try to go and where I always try to zoom out is to say, but what, like, what is the change? that you're looking to bring to the world um, and like what is that intention before you then start to get into how you go about bringing it into being and what jobs might be practical ways for for them to take first steps on, on that path or not first steps maybe it's next steps and people are at the point of, of changing jobs within um, the sector um, and I, I want to be fair this is also true of a lot of folks who've been doing the work for a long time I have no shortage of those conversations with friends too we all do for each other um, and uh, now I here I am getting close to 40 and a lot of the conversations I have with folks in this in this space are 
you know, oh my God, this isn't fulfilling for me anymore. My 22 year old self thought that this job that I now have would be the thing I wanted, but it's not like, how, what do I do? Right. A lot of people are facing that um, as they live out the job description that they thought was what they wanted. So I'm, I, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what advice you have for folks who are at any stage of their careers about how to start with intention instead of the job description um, and how to go about creating a dream job in social justice. You've created now multiple dream jobs for yourself, all of which fit together with that larger mission as you started up top talking about versus going looking for job descriptions that one might be able to pretzel their, themselves into, um, in, in, you know, but, but starting at that level. And I want to start again with the caveat. Obviously, there are times in people's careers, especially in the beginning, where sometimes you're just, you're needing to take whatever job you can get and, and you got to get the foot in the door. But my plea here is for folks to realize um, that there is another level of intentionality to bring, even if that's going to be the reality for getting the foot in the metaphorical door. So Alex, where do you, where do you want to take that in terms of where you were just going? That's great. Um, yeah. Big prompts you have today. Um, so I it's think a, it's a big, it's a big thought day, Alex. I'm talking to you, right? What, in, what was I'm I into it? Uh, I, I studied philosophy in my undergraduate. I will say, uh, I love my, my school, my alma mater, uh, St. John's College. I went to Santa Fe campus. Beautiful. Um, much better at it now. But I will say, when I went, there was literally no career services. That's not true. There was, there was like, it was worse than no career services. Um, and that, so the education was amazing, but I did enter the sort of the job market knowing nothing. So I think that that actually in some ways helped me because the story I told about reading that National Geographics was I think most people like knew what a cover letter was, how to write one. I would write like like thesis on my cover letter. Like, let me tell you the philosophical underpinnings of why I'm uh, and um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I, I, I think that helped me actually maybe like break out of something that you're, you were um, talking about because I knew what I wanted to do. And I was looking for a job that would allow me to advance what I wanted to do, which was this you know, it wasn't like super duper well-formed at the time, but I had a, a moral vision of what I wanted to do with a preferential option for the poor, um, which means healing the sick, caring for the downtrodden, feeding the hungry. Uh, and um, so I think I, without knowing the, I'm also super lucky. So I'll put that out there. Don't ever discount luck, but I do think if I can, um, talk about stuff that did work out for me and some of the stuff that didn't, and it can help people do it in an intentional way. That's what I would love uh, more than anything, right? That's what would be wonderful. Um, I think that I accidentally did what you just said, right? I think that I went into the job market looking for something that would advance my um, ability to, to push forward in my, my sort of moral vision. Uh, and I will say in the beginning, I volunteered and I, I had another, I had a normal job too, which I, I was a bartender uh, at levels of Lake Forest and it was exhausting. I mean, when I was, I was uh, driving down to the city, 
um, to get some experience, unpaid volunteerism, um, which, you know, I don't believe in. Uh, I didn't realize the exploitative nature of volunteer. Not that they, not that I think that Heartland Health Outreach was, but I think now there's a, a better understanding uh, more so than, you know, two decades ago of um, that you should get paid for your work. Um, same time, I learned a lot in the beginning and the the volunteering definitely led to me being able to stop being a bartender and become uh, paid doing the work that um, I had, you know, first set out to learn about in an unpaid capacity. Um, I, again, I sort of hate the idea of saying that, but I will also admit that that is what I did too. So that, that, um, that is, you know, part of the path that I took. Um, but it was because I was looking to figure out exactly where I could do the most, um, to advance what I saw as a, as a purpose. And then once it was really honed in on, um, pharma and drug prices and, um, you know, what, as Martin Luther King said uh, in paraphrase, but the inequities in health are, um, the worst, you know, and I really wanted to examine that and, and, and change it because I, I did learn about the fact that, you know, you, it's basically a tap that big money has they they hold our health over us and uh over the globe as well they can turn on and off health and that is abhorrent um so i would be looking for places that i could advance that um mission that i felt was in you know that was mine um and it did lead to me sort of like i i had strategic career moves like where let me pause there and and say something that I think I, I've also learned over my career, but in a sort of negative way. And it's a little bit like beware young people. So I'm definitely sounding like the, the middle-aged man that I am. But I was really lucky that uh, I was able to find places that were ideologically or philosophically similar to me because I've seen over and over again People think that they're just taking a job when they're right out of college. And that's when it, the pressure is the highest, I think, is in that first, part, like the, to take just a job. Um, they'll learn whole identities at that first job, right? And they won't even think that they have just wholesale um, taken on ideas uh, from external place, you know, their job. But I see it over and over again. And that that's why big money and, you know, like the right wing machine is really good at this. They go in and they, you know, they recruit um, uh, college age kids and they start taking them into, you know, seminars and giving them summer school jobs and basically saying, as long as you toe the line on these ideas, you're going to have a job forever. Uh, and it's just true. You know, I, I, I don't want to like, personalize it too much, like say Mark Goldwine, for example, but you know, like if there were other people or just like a, a type of person who does work um, and they come into like a space and it, I just don't think that people are naturally like, maybe there are some, maybe Alex P. Keaton comes, you know, some people are born being like, you know what, the rich are getting a raw deal here. We need to protect the rich more than anything else uh, and make sure that policies benefit the rich and powerful. Um, 
I think a lot of that stuff is picked up um, along the way. And so, yes, I, I, I was very lucky. And I would also warn people um, to be aware that, you know, in the jobs that you take, if you haven't sort of identified your why you're doing stuff, you're probably going to end up taking on um, the aspects of your job as like as identity, as parts of your identity, as as why. Um, if you don't know why you're doing things, the why will be supplied to you. Um, and maybe that's sort of a, a guiding thing of why it's so important to really examine what is it that you're trying to do? Um, what is your goal? What would a win look like? And when you can describe that in words and understand it, then I do think you have some armor up against your identity coming from, you know, your job, which I, I think leads like it's a direct line to burnout, right? Like if your job is your life, you can, you can have your job be deeply part of your identity but still understand that it's only facilitating what you're trying to do. It is not who you are. Um, I think that's one of the most important um, aspects. I also, I'm going to toss it back to you to see what you think, and we can take it wherever you want to go. I have like management um, stuff too about how to, because I, I learned through a lot of this time as an activist working in HIV clinics, being an HIV activist, a public health activist, I did learn that burnout is our main enemy. Um, so obviously the funding structures and Wall Street and Big Pharma and all of our opposition. But what I kept seeing as the biggest problem was our best people could not sustain uh, the work over the long term. And, and some of that is because of bad bosses and bad work, working environments, right? So if anyone is ever like, like pushing you to cancel vacations to do the work or anything no, that they're not going to replace uh, 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 any system with something better. If you know, they they're taking their management um, notes from Elon Musk, for example. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think I'd, I'd leave it there with the, like, be really aware of what you're doing and why not what I mean, be aware of what you're doing, but be really aware of why you're, you're, doing what you're doing and why you want to do it, it's going to help in sort of all along the way here uh, on all of the fronts that we are discussing. Yep. And, and burnout being the enemy. I mean, I feel like you're doing, and you're doing like a promo for why we're doing this season of off kilter, right? Because it's spreading like wildfire throughout the progressive movement, but it's also not a new phenomenon. It, it has been the enemy for quite some time. And uh, I'll put in a plug for last week's episode. Folks can check out our conversation with Sarah Jaffe talking about some of the structural reasons for that baked into the very history of the nonprofit sector. Um, so go give a listen to that episode for a little bit about why burnout is the enemy and has been for quite some time. But Alex, we're, we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to throw one more question to you and then we're going we're gonna to close out, which makes me sad because I could have this conversation with you every, uh, every day, all day. Um, and I think we would still come up with more that needs to, needs to be said. And, and um, I'm also just really enjoying your incredibly thoughtful answers. Um, 
I'd forgotten that you were a philosophy major undergrad. Explains so much about why I, I love you so much because I'm also something of a, a philosopher and how I approach this work. So um, makes makes sense. Um, but Alex, you started to get into it in talking a little bit about management and and how important that is. And I have to say, as I was writing out this list of like what are the what are the things that a person could or should learn from Alex Lawson and how he uh, shows up in this work, the last one I wanted to make sure we got time to include um, is is uh, that fun and joy are core parts of the work. Um, and that really is a lesson that you model. You model it in how you do the work, but you also model it in how you manage. It's baked into the culture that you set in the workplaces that you've described. Social Security Works, where you're the executive director. We Act Radio, which you're one of the co-owners. Um, it, I mean, it's also just honestly evident in any meeting with you or, or Zoom. Um, so for example, if I'm going to bring in um, maybe a, you know a, a, a colleague from the Century Foundation to touch base with you about this podcast, right? Like, I, there, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize you have a lot of fun and bring a lot of joy to your work. You don't show up and just be like, "Oh, I'm stressed. I have all this pressure, all these meetings." Like, that's that's like the normal beginning, I think, to most Zooms and most meetings. Like, most of the time, what you radiate is is like, "What fun can I have today in the work?" Um, and, you know, a great example of this would be, uh, you know, a bunch of us were all really stressed out back in the last time we were dealing with austerity politics in a significant way, trying to, you know, prevent Social Security from being cut in the name of deficit reduction. And you and your response was like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to just let this stress me out and get me down. I'm going to show up as a corporate pirate dressed as an actual pirate at a rally led by someone you just name checked before Mark Goldwine and the can kicks back. Um, and so um, Aisha Nyandoro talked a little bit about joy as a practice um, for radical self-care in our season opener. And folks should go back and listen to that episode and hear her talk about that as well. But in the last few minutes that we have, how do joy and fun show up as radical self-care practices for you in this work? Yeah, it, it's, um, I mean, first of all, again, and I try because we're having this, this very important and serious discussion, I would say, start off saying it's hard, you know, <laughs> like, um, don't think that, uh, you know, oh, well, I'm not having fun fighting uh, for justice. So it must be something wrong with me. Um, it's really difficult. And um, it does take a lot of work to find a place where you can find the joy in this, the, the work. Um, that, yeah, we're going to run out of time. We'll have to have lots more conversations, but um, I'll mix in some like uh, a couple more things that I think are important. It's, it's difficult to find joy in what is acknowledged as an ever-ending struggle that you or I will never win. Um, that I think you can read in all sorts of allegories that the promised land, you're not going to get there. Maybe you're going to get a glimpse of it, but the struggle is beautiful in that we will do it even though we know that we're not going to win, that we will just advance down the line towards something so that possibly my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren or maybe generations so far in the future that I can't put words to it um, until you know we, we realize uh, as humanity that the very few having everything and that means nothing because it's not like they're like oh yeah great i have 
billions. I'm satisfied now. No, it's an addiction and they will never um, uh, actually be satisfied either. Uh, but that the system that we allow this perverse system to exist where kids are uh, in poverty, millions, tens of millions uh, of people around the world die because they can't eat enough. And we have people who are sending themselves into space um, on, you know, phallic rocket ships because they got so much money just sitting on the side. That is abhorrent. Um, so it is ugly and disgusting and difficult. And so how do you find joy? Um, unfortunately, part of it is, or I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it is, it is a, a mindful practice. You have to force yourself to find joy um, and not to just quote Nietzsche, but here I go. Um, if you stare into the abyss long enough, it will stare back um, and fighting demons uh, fighting evil, you can't become what it is that uh, you're trying to eliminate. If you become a very unjust person in the fight for justice, then that fight for justice is lost. Um, and so you have to actively and mindfully um, find the joy. And I, I do think that uh, comedy, uh, you know, even if it's like the grand universal comedy of the absurdity of existence um, helps me uh, but then really, you know, taking care of yourself in the very formulaic ways, right? Like therapy and exercise, uh, getting outside, touching grass, enjoying music, dancing with your eyes closed or open, doesn't matter. Um, appreciating art, you know, those are all active things that I think we have to make time for because we have to recognize um, that it is not inherently easy. It's actually inherently hard. To, to, to do the work that we do and stay happy. Um, but you have there's so many different stories um, that are told to make the same point, which is you have to make your own bed before you can uh, go out and do something else, right? Before you can help other people, you have to make sure that you're in a, in a solid place or you're going to impact your ability uh, to actually help uh, or fight for justice, because you're not going to be on a solid foundation. Uh, so it actually is part of and possibly the primary part of being effective in the struggle is finding that personal satisfaction, um, that personal joy uh, from doing the work that, that we do. I can't think of a better place to end this conversation. And I, it's my only regret in having it is that it is coming to an end um, because I really, I, I love so much of what you've brought into this series, Alex. Um, I um, am honored to get to be in this work with you to um, count you as a, a dear, dear friend. Um, and uh, it, it, this is, this conversation has been a lot of fun for me personally, because usually I'm talking to you about policy stuff. And so it was fun to get to, to flip this a little bit and, and to, um, to talk a little bit about the, how we do this work. Um, I, I'm going to close, um, just by saying and invoking from the, um, the opening monologue, um, the Thelonious Monk quote that, um, it felt to me like the right way to frame up this episode, but, 
Um, find the technique that's relevant for you. I honestly, I can't think of somebody who embodies this, that quote more perfectly, more beautifully. You don't just do the work differently than we're often told it needs to be done. You also, as you've talked about, wear a whole bunch of, of hats that many of which are jobs you've created for yourself in order to do the work as you, as you saw it needing to be done and in ways that allow you to express a whole bunch of different components of your unique archetype, your unique Alex Lawsonness. So um, thank you for all all that you've taught me over the years and for sharing your wisdom with um, with the pod. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for letting me. And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals and the indefatigable Abby Grimshaw. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off Kilter Enterprises, send us some love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.